Today is Monday, August 13th, 2018. I'm here with Professor Joseph, and today we'll be talking about Ghana between 1989 and 1994. Um, so, from what I understand, Ghana began this transition towards democracy after the fall of the Soviet Union in 89. Um, when did your actual participation in the country start? And what did it look like? Was it them reaching out to you? Was it you reaching out to them? Okay, my involvement in Ghana uh, goes back to the late 1970s when I um, was teaching at the University of Ibadan in Nigeria and traveled on a few occasions uh, to, um, to Ghana. Um, I had a very good friend, uh, name is Eric Bafour. Uh, we were colleagues, we were students at Oxford University um, together. And so I visited him and his family on a few occasions uh, during the late 1970s. And this was a very difficult period economically um, in Ghana. Um, and, uh, you know, so my experience of, you know, Ghanaian politics really, I mean, of course I had studied it um, as part of my general studies, but I was actually able to experience, you know, Ghana, you know, from the, the late uh, uh, 1970s. Of course, Ghana went through um, a lot of turbulence, uh, military coming to power, elections, 1979, you had the um, the overthrow, um, you know, of the government um, by you know Jerry Rawlings um, and his the other members, you know, other coup makers. Um, Rawlings um, enabling the country to have elections within a relatively short period, uh, but then returning again. Um, in 1981 um, and settling in for the very long period. Uh, so anyway, that was the start of my involvement. Um, now, at the Carter Center, um, I traveled with uh, President Carter um, and other of the Carter Center officials to Ghana in 1989. Um, that visit was very much about Carter Center um, agricultural and health programs uh, but I went there um, with the idea of uh, seeing directly where Ghana was with regard to the political processes um, and so that was you know really the the way in which so I had some personal involvement um, but then I had that direct involvement under Carter Center auspices starting, you know, sometime in 1989. Okay. Great. Um, when you were, when you first showed up in Ghana, did mm -hmm. you immediately bring out your own agenda, or did you stay behind Carter's agenda at first? Uh, the Carter Center agenda uh, was really uh, um, an umbrella um, 
you know, under which I was able to pursue uh, my own um, concerns uh, that this was a military government. Um, obviously, I was very much committed to um, countries moving uh, towards uh, greater liberalization and democracy. Um, that was not officially the Carter Center's uh, 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 priority or even position. Uh, President Carter had a very close uh, relationship with um, Jerry Rawlings. He had a very high amount, high degree of admiration for Jerry Rawlings. Uh, that mutual admiration continued. Um, and but uh, Carter's real interest was in the, uh, you know, this global uh, 2000 the Sasakawa program, uh, having to do with increasing uh, maize production, and also the guinea worm program, and um, he and Rawlings saw eye to eye, um, you know, on those programs. Rawlings um, was very critical of the political elites in, in Ghana. He thought they had misled the, the country. He also uh, believed there was a, you know, an urban bias to government policy and therefore wanted to shift attention um, towards the rural areas. And so he and uh, he and Jimmy Carter really had um, a, a real meeting of the minds um, with regard to that. Um, you know, my perspective was different. Uh, my perspective was that um, Ghanaians had a long history. It was the first country to become independent in Africa. I saw Ghana uh, as the country that could uh, play a major breakthrough role um, towards uh, constitutional democracy. And so we function in that way. Uh, you, know, you know, President Carter um, was very cognizant of what my views are, commitments were. And, um, you know, we, never, we didn't have any, there was no real conflict. We were just different priorities. And I was able to uh, pursue, you know, the governance ideas um, that I had and, and especially the liberalization policy. So a lot that took place with regard to Ghana uh, with reg and, and from the Carter Center standpoint, I, I, I mean, I personally played uh, quite a role. Of course, there were others involved, um, other organizations, National Democratic Institute and so on. But in the case of Ghana, and Rawlings himself has um, recognized and admitted it that you know he was not happy about things that I was doing and things that I was saying, um, and there would be complaints that would reach uh, President Carter and the Carter Center. But there was no real effort. Um, to um, you know, stop me and the people I was working with from what we were doing, and so you know, we we sort of moved through those differences and tensions, and um, 
you know, and reading the, you know, some of the documents um, of the period, I think that, you know, they, right now, I think they, they really hold up to, to scrutiny. Go ahead. <laughs> um, regarding the new constitution that was established around this time, yeah. did international influence have much effect on that, or was that more something that the Ghanaian government did themselves? Um, it's, yeah, uh, there, there's sort of multiple strands to um, that answer. Um, one strand, again, going back to Rawlings and uh, PNDC, uh, and Rawlings himself was very critical, he was very critical of the push towards what he saw as um, um, a Western model um, of of um, of a of a political system, a democratic system, um, very critical of it, openly critical of it, uh, and very critical of the um, Ghanaian intellectuals, uh, and really felt like that they were not um, being very um, you know original in their thinking with regard to that. Um, so, um, so on the one hand, you you know you had this very strong, and I think Edu Bohen, Professor Edu Bohen, who um, you know played a very important role as a critique of the Rawlings regime um, during its you know military 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 during the military rule era, um, and also was the leader and presidential candidate of the the NPP, the main opposition party, um, he advocated a very strong constitutional uh, rule of law, uh, political liberties idea. And in the case of Ghana, again, given the Ghana, you know, traditions where you had the you you'd see it referred to the Dankwa Buzia tradition uh, as opposed to the Nkrumahist tradition, right? Um, and this was very deeply embedded. Over time, Rawlings and the PNDC um, came to um, to ally itself with what it saw as the Nkrumahist <coughs> kind of radical position. But uh, so these two things were very much in play um, in Ghana. Um, and uh, so when you ask the question, did, in terms of the external community, what role they had to play, um, I believe their role was really one of, of facilitating, um, you know, those voices. They, they were not responsible for those voices because Ghana had a very strong... Um, in terms of the you know level of education, the you know legal professions, you know, and you know all of that. Ghana, Ghana was very, um, just very, really well endowed with thinkers um, in that area, but they were under um, um, a lot of, um, uh, of of they faced a lot of oppression um, during the, uh, the during the Rawlings military e era. Right, so external uh, 
the external community that was able to come in, especially you know starting from 1989, was where they were able to um, you know um, facilitate uh, you know um, the um, greater freeing um, of those voices, the greater protection of those voices, the widening of the political space and all the rest. Yes. So, yeah. Okay. Um, I'd like to shift our focus to mm. post-election, right. if that's all right. Sure. Um, directly following the 92 election, yeah. a lot of the documents from the Carter Center describe the mission as shifting sort of towards a peacekeeping rather than election monitoring. And I believe that the Carter Center was the only monitoring body that stayed around after the election. Um, are there any events from that time period that stand out to you? And do you think describe the times well? Yeah, okay. Now, I think this is um, really important. And I, quite frankly, um, I um, intend to go more deeply into that period, you know, what we refer to as this, this critical juncture. Um, I think it's important. Are you taping? Because what I'm going yes. to say here, good. Because um, the um, looking and seeing how those elections um, took place in Ghana. Remember that leading up to the, the, the Constitution, um, and there was a lot of pressure from these these popular forces right these pro liberal democratic forces and great resistance on the part of the the PNDC um, and its allies right and so during that period leading up to those elections it was elections that was taking place in a context of uh, both reluctance on the part of the um, the regime, and even um, you know antagonism on the part of the regime. It was that kind of an atmosphere, and the opposition had to um, accept conditions that it saw as not being really favorable. And for example, we have in the records a lot of mention about the election the electoral register, right? and even the appointment of the um, Electoral Commission, because all of that, all of those structures uh, were established um, during the military era. And they were coming in, and they didn't have much opportunity to effect much changes in it. So they went into that process knowing um, how disadvantaged they were. Um, they, you know, it was not an even uh, playing field. So what I think is just so critical is to understand how come in those circumstances um, Ghana was able to go through what was a, a flawed electoral process. I mean, the opposition published a document calling it, uh, uh, you know, sto stolen, stolen verdict. Um, and um, yet not have the, uh, the whole transition process fall apart, right? There was always, um, you know, acts of violence, and we were, you know, not widespread violence, but there was a lot of, you know, um, you know, um, you know, violence was very much part, um, you know, of the process, um, you know, 
you know, going through the pre-election, during the elections and so on, and afterwards and the disputes about the elections. So uh, understanding, you know, how Ghana, um, you know, was able to go through a um, situation that seemed so, um, so um, non-propitious as far as the democratic. And so the analysis will have to look at the Electoral Commission, right? Look at the, um, uh, the um, Ofori Boateng, the you know, chairman of the Electoral Commission, uh, individuals um, within the government, uh, such as you know, Deputy Foreign Minister Mohamed Chambas and others, um, who were you know, very much favorable to Ghana moving in a more liberal direction. That whole interplay that took place during that period. And even of Rawlings himself, you know, gradually um, given ground, gradually learning, um, you know, um, um, you know, but insisting that Ghana will retain um, some of the changes they introduced um, during the military era. I'll just mention two of them, the creation of these uh, district council system, um, which they got entrenched in the constitution, um, and the, you know, greater attention to the rural areas um, and some other social um, programs. Well, one other thing that's also part of this element was the fact that Ghana was also moving to um, a more um, market-based you know, economic system, having tried to go in a different direction and having to do so. And so the ways in which um, it opened up the system being so uh, critical, not only of the liberal political voices, but also very critical of what it saw as these um, liberal economic voices, which it saw as being wedded to the opposition. Right? Um, and the, 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 the regime essentially, while allowing those liberal economic changes to take place, had to create um, its own class of capitalist entrepreneurs, right? Because those who existed for the large part tended to favor the opposition. And so that process worked itself out until to the point where Ghana now, I mean, you know, had, could draw on, could, um, you know, economic as well as political forces representing both of these major wings. Okay. Um, we could go a couple of directions at this point. Right. I could ask you about the Electoral Commission in right. more detail. We right. could talk about an evolving relationship with um, Rawlings after the election. Yeah. Or... Um, well, let's, actually, let's, let's start off with those two, because they were important. Uh, in, let, yeah. About the Electoral Commission yeah. and one of your past recordings from last summer, yeah. you mentioned that the Constitution protected this Electoral Commission very well, and that that was like a big reason that the election was able to be successful, was because opposition had the ability to influence this commission? Well, um, yeah, well, let me just talk about that, because within the Constitution, um, in addition to the Electoral Commission, 
there was a Commission on Human Rights and Administrative Justice and other um, entities, civic education, um, um, that were created um, and which um, were given protections uh, for their autonomy, you know, in the Constitution itself. Now, saying that, you could have that in words, but, you know, what happens in practice? If you take the Electoral Commission, uh, the Electoral Commission, um, I remember meeting, um, you know, Justice Anand, um, because there was a predecessor to this interim electoral commission that was responsible for conducting, you know, electoral affairs uh, during the military era. The commission that oversaw the 92 elections had a number of its members um, who were seen by the opposition as being pro-government, right? Um, and, uh, you know, it's, you know, I give a lot of credit to the chairman of the election commission, um, you know, um, Ofori uh, Boating, um, and I, and, and to um, the, the deputy um, chairman of the commission, um, uh, Professor um, Afari Jan, and Afari Jan subsequently became the, the chairman of the commission. So the point is that this commission that was appointed by the regime that had a number of its members who were uh, seen as you know, pro-government managed to gradually um, acquire um, a lot of, uh, of respect among the um, the the populace and, and with the political opposition over time. I mean, that's really, you know, quite an achievement. So it wasn't just what they had in terms of the law, it was also the individuals. If I can interject. Go ahead. Do you think that was intentional by the government to set up a, a commission like that? Or just fortuitous that the people or the individuals that they selected happened to change their minds and go towards the, the pro-liberalization? Well, you know, I mean, we can get at some of that, you know, by actually, you know, if I ever able to do this, go back and interview some of the people who were involved. Um, and I think the, um, and I, let me, I might have mentioned this in my previous interview, but let me just show you just one um, moment that sort of illustrates what we were dealing with. And I've seen this in other, you know, contexts of other elections I was involved in. Uh, there came a particular point when um, the um, our election, you know, missions, Carter Center and others, came under criticism in the in the media. And the media was overwhelmingly government-owned media, right? Um, and I remember where the chairman of the commission, you know, issued a statement. And you know, I you know, and you know, I remember it to this day. Though I, even though I can't remember his exact words, where he said that you know that you know Ghana, um, you know, um, you know, is a country that aspires to international standards, and these organizations here um, they reflect those standards, and therefore there is no contradiction 
between um, the work that they're doing and Ghana's aspirations. Now, this gives you an idea that within the, all this universe, there are individuals and organizations who were, you know, taking advantage of the opportunity, you know, to espouse those kinds of positions. This was not a regime talking, right? Um, and, um, and so I believe that to answer your question, I don't think this was deliberate on the part of the regime, but I think that these institutions emerge out of compromises, all right, as part of the struggle taking place. And those individuals who were in there were themselves of a character, because I had to deal with them. I met with them, met with the chairman, vice chair, member of the councils, and so on. And, um, you know, and it was, this was uh, quite different from going into a country in which the, uh, the Electoral Commission is really just a front for the government. Right? And this was just not the case. These were individuals who were clearly, um, you know, meant to, 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 to carry out their duties. I mean, in other words, that they were going to use their position, knowing all the restraints, to, to, to help advance Ghana along this road. And, and I think that proved to be the case. We should pull out as many documents about that as we can find because that seems to be like one of the major contrasts between a successful transition right. and an unsuccessful one and something that a lot of countries just didn't have. No, definitely. No, they, they, <coughs> the, the extent to which you have these organizations, um, you know, in the judiciary, uh, you know, institutions like electoral commissions, you have others like anti-corruption, you know, auditing commissions and so on. The extent to which those institutions emerged um, and were able to, um, let us put it this way, represent the state and represent the, and the society and the people and the nation um, rather than just the regime. And it's, you know, and Ghana, you know, for a whole number of reasons was able to make what I consider, you know, a breakthrough, you know. Okay. Another area where Ghana seems to have succeeded very well, where other countries uh, have, have faced a lot of problems, yeah. is the fact that Rawlings l did leave after his two terms in office were over. Right. So I'd like to hear a little bit how the Carter Center relationship with Rawlings changed after these elections, whether it changed, but I know that you guys had a very personal relationship with him. Right. So I think it'd be interesting to hear about how that shifted once he well, became a democratically elected leader. Right. Now, um, so let me go back to what we said, you know, earlier. And obviously there have not been any conversation or interviews um, among the individuals who were, you know, active and played a role during this period, right? I'm just going back and reading into it, right? But the the relationship between Rawlings, as I mentioned, and Jimmy Carter was very strong. And in fact, um, I remember uh, President Carter even uh, nominated um, Rawlings um, for this um, leadership award. Um, you know, during this period, so it would have been, you know, not too long, perhaps after the elections. And I can't remember who were the actual. 
organization making this um, annual leadership award. And he was disappointed that Rawlings um, um, was not given the award. Um, of course, I felt differently <laughs> because I felt that that um, oh, it'd be subsequent, you know, after you know Rawlings were able to, you know, show that he was really going to uphold the constitutional system, even though he fought very much against, you know, you know, it taking that shape. But I didn't um, agree. I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't dispute what Carter had said. I just, you know, I didn't share his disappointment because I felt at that particular moment. Um, leadership boards should go to um, um, to individuals who were really moving the democratic process forward, who were you know at the forefront in doing so. All right, so I would have given the award to Edu Bohen <laughs> for what he did, right? But um, you know, in retrospect, we have to recognize you know that what an important contribution Rawlings did make. Uh, to Ghana emerging as a democracy it is. Um, you could contrast Rawlings with Museveni at same in, in Uganda, right? And Museveni had the same attitudes towards, um, you know, pluralist democracy as Rawlings did, but Museveni was basically able to block that occurring in, in um, Uganda. Of course, the countries you know are different, so you have to take that into consideration. But I think the role of individuals is important, and I think um, Rawlings did evolve over time. Uh, I think Rawlings um, was, you know, open to to Ghanaians and 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 you know, and what Ghanaians of all uh, political views were actually saying. Um, he. Um, you know, he was asked a question by a researcher um, to, um, and on this particular question, asking him, um, well, you know, how did it happen that for somebody who was so opposed to this kind of a system that you ended up playing such an important role in that system becoming consolidated in, in Ghana? And he did, you know, in the conversation, you know, mention at one point, well, um, and the person asked many individuals, he said, well, there is this African-American from the U.S. State Department. Anyway, uh, you know, people, there were questions came up, but they were trying to, well, they were trying to track down this scholar. Who was this person? Of course, you know, Rawlings in his mind had assumed, and if you look at some of the documents, you could see that the, you know, the embassy was facilitating a lot of the visits. Well, it wasn't a, somebody working with the State Department. It, you know, was clearly myself, but there's nobody else that I knew of who fit that category. So in Rawlings' own mind, it was the fact that, yeah, there was somebody who I know was hammering away and, you know, I would be on radio, I'd be on television, I was speaking very, you know, clearly. And, and obviously everything we, we, you know, we wrote, I mean, you know, was brought to his attention and so on. Um, he he you know he made known his um his um his his frustration and his exasperation um you know with you know I don't want to give myself too much credit there were other people involved so I'm just speaking for myself working at the Carter Center and the role that I was playing you know I directed the you know our election mission and so on um and I was the most sort of you know public face um you know from you know that coalition um 
but he, you know, he expressed his frustration. Uh, but you know, like I said, he, um, you know, you know, they didn't do anything to to basically stop us or block us. We were able to just continue, and of course, a lot of that had to do with his respect for for Jimmy Carter. So there, it was a process of, you know, learning and evolution. But in retrospect, but coming back to Rawlings and uh, his. Um, you know, if you look at the disputes following the elections um, in 1992, the demands of the opposition, right, and where um, the, you know, I was even rereading, you know, a couple of my statements at the time, really calling on all sides to, you know, to be open to dialogue um, over and over again about avoiding violence, the great risk of violence. Um, and this came up again in '96, um, you know. And if I might just jump ahead, when I was there, and once again, a lot of the same issues was there about, you know, fraud, voter fraud, you know, the rigging of elections, and so on. And in that case, um, the Ghana to show how we had come Ghana broadcasting, you know, uh, had uh, an interview with me, and. Following the elections and during the, um, you know, in the aftermath of the elections and where there was, you know, uh, a great risk of, you know, of, of violent conflict, that, um, you know, the Ghana broadcasting, you know, kept, you know, repeating the interview they had with me over the air where I'm calling, you know, on Ghanaians to, you know, whatever problems you have, these can be solved. This is what I was saying over and over again. Um, so, Rawlings, um, um, there was always a degree of uncertainty, just given the way in which he, he ruled, you know, during that military era, um, the intolerance for criticism and opposition, the culture of silence, you know, Edu Boyhan, there was real uncertainty about, you know, I mean, they, 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 the, the committees, what they call the CDRs of the, you know, they had these, you know, um, irregular military and other kind of forces that they would actually go along with the building of this system. And finally, that, that, um, that an election, a fair election, a fair election would occur. And if they were defeated, they would hand over power. There was uncertainty until it actually happened in 2000 that this would take place. Now again getting back to the Electoral Commission um, the Electoral Commission in Ghana you know it's really become a real model of how you can go from a situation of um, such a low level of capacity, low level of integrity, low level of public trust to gradually being able to build that up right and when they, for example, a lot of the innovations, um, creating um, a, 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 an, an inter-party uh, committee, bringing all the parties together to meet with them and to, um, you know, discuss developments. And I think in that case, uh, as you were able to see from the uh, MIT conference in 1997, when we had uh, Professor Afari Jan come and speak, is... Um, um, the the very important role that he was able to play um, in 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 the electoral commission emerging 
as a truly independent um, um, entity and also um, independent um, and nonpartisan um, and also um, greater sort of competence in electoral affairs. I mean, it's a real major role of, in terms of institution building and, you know, I give him a lot of credit. I give his predecessor a lot of credit for reporting during that very difficult period. Um, he's a former, you know, judge, right? Um, and uh, by the way, another thing about, you could look into the details of it, but the electoral commissioners, you know, were granted um, certain protections in terms of tenure, um, very much based on the, you know, the powers of people in the judiciary. A lot of this, you know, went into um, the way they were set up. So you both had that in terms of procedures, but also Ghana was very fortunate in the individuals, you know, who were, you know, who emerged during that period. Okay, one more question on this round. <laughs> and uh, we'll come back to others. We'll have another session. I want to be fresh. <laughs> Let's see. This okay. one's already about as long as most of the other recordings. Okay, so, so any, any last question that you have? Um, well, let me, just, let me just complete the thought. So the 2000 elections, they, you know, the first election, they had the uh, presidential election first, Rawlings won decisively. Um, the opposition boycotted, right? Um, they, so Ghana had to enter the begin the fourth republic with the, um, the, the, the ruling party, which became the NDC, and a few of its allies controlling all of the seats, right? In the 1996 election, they, um, this time they they didn't have the presidential and parliamentary elections separate. They had them together because that really created a problem the first time. So you had all the elections together. Um, and at this time, they, um, although they lost the um, presidency, um, the NPP won a significant share of seats. Now, for the 2000 elections, was where now it was much more balanced. All of the electoral um, you know, procedures and improvements had been put in place. And then there was a question of what would happen if the NDC lost, right? Um, and there was a, there's also a two-term limit, um, you know, in the Constitution. Other countries have removed it. So Ghana has not done anything about the two-term presidential limit. That has re retained. Elections have taken place on schedule. And when they lost the election, you know, this was Ghana's, um, you know, um, 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 you know, um, you know, um, you know, Washington um, moment in terms of America's first president. What happens when you with your first president of the republic? How does that first president uh, behave, right, at that point, right? And because you have all of that power and leaving that power to go off and be a private citizen. And, you know, and Rawlings, you know, they lost the election and they, you know, hand it over. And since then, you know, every, they've had elections on schedule. And, uh, you know, and I think, you know, Ghana is, um, you know, as, you know, as, as consolidated a democracy as, you know, we have in the continent. Good. Great. All right. Thank you. All right.